well, you know what? There are certain things in life that uh, we'd better get right, right? Like uh, the date of your anniversary, when somebody asks you that in public and your spouse is standing right there, better get that right. <laughs> like uh, certain hand gestures when you're visiting another country. You know, they mean something here and then they mean something else there. Better get that right, lest you uh, offend. The correct oven temperature for cooking your Thanksgiving turkey. Better get that right, lest it turn out dry and you end up disappointing the crowd that's joining you. We do hope you have a, a blessed Thanksgiving uh, holiday this week. Really do. Certain things we better get right. But beyond those things, those somewhat trivial things, let's all agree that it's, a, it's of utmost importance that we get the gospel right. True? We must get the gospel right. And that means getting the relationship between faith and works right. Getting that right. We know faith is important, and we know doing good works is important. But what's the connection between the two? And which of them initially brings a person into a relationship with God? We've got to get that right. You know, if you get those other things wrong, you might be embarrassed for a little while. But if you get this wrong, consequences are lasting, aren't they? There is a lot at stake in having a biblical, gospel-formed understanding of faith and works. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul, the, the writer of the New Testament book of Romans, is concerned with as he moves from chapter 3 into chapter 4, which is where we find ourselves today. So if you have a Bible or the Bible on a device, go ahead and turn to Romans 4, go there. If you haven't yet pulled the study guide out of your worship folder, you can do that as well. You can kind of track with where I'm going. I got some blanks on there for those of you who love to fill in those blanks. And uh, there's some white space also uh, in the off chance that I say something worth, worth remembering. You can write that down as well. Well, the, the New Testament book of Romans is about the gospel. That's the theme of the book. And the gospel is the good news that God has done for human beings what human beings could not do for themselves. At great personal cost, God has designed and perfectly executed a plan, a plan to actually justify guilty sinners and adopt them into his royal family as sons and daughters and promises that they will be with him forever and live with him and dwell with him in a beautifully refashioned and restored new creation that we call the new heavens and the new earth. That is the good news. Furthermore, God did all of that in a way that preserved his own righteousness. It kept his reputation intact as a righteous God and a just judge. And if somebody wants to know how to get in on all that, the further good news is that anybody, Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, Democrat or Republican, Buckeye fan or Michigan fan, anybody... Anybody, I said anybody, who willingly transfers their full trust from themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Son of the living God, 
Anyone who does that is immediately forgiven of all their sins and justified in the sight of God, which means to be pronounced righteous, credited with the spotless record of Jesus himself. This is such good news for mankind. Such good news. So according to this gospel, all of this amazing goodness is obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Would you say that with me? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Only God's grace, not human merits or achievements. Only faith, not our good deeds. And faith only in Christ and His sacrifice for us, nothing else. Like the old songwriter wrote, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. That's it. That's it. Well, a couple of weeks ago we studied the end of chapter 3 of the book of the Romans, the last 10 verses there. And what we saw there was this very thing, the, uh, the doctrine or the theology of justification by faith alone. But now as we move into chapter 4, we see that Paul decides that his readers needed an illustration. Sometimes we need an illustration, right, to, to, to help us get it. A flesh and blood example of somebody who was justified by faith alone and he scoured the Old Testament, and he settled on one person, and that person's name was Abraham. And the entire chapter, Romans chapter 4, focuses on this one man. I'll tell you why in a minute. But first, here's how the chapter kind of breaks down. Paul is going to contend that Abraham, this man who was considered to be the father of the Jewish nation, was justified by faith and not by works. That's the first eight verses. He was justified by faith and not by circumcision, that's verses 9 through 12. Abraham was justified by grace and not by the law, verses 13 through 18. And he was justified by the power of God and not by his own human effort, that's verses 19 through 25. That's how it breaks down, but of course it kind of begs the question, why Abraham, Paul? Why are you focusing on that guy? Why are you highlighting him? Why did Paul decide to devote so much ink to this one guy? And the short answer is because of Paul's audience, because of who he's writing to. A large percentage of his readers would have been Jewish people or influenced by Jewish thought. And the Jews, as you probably know, loved Abraham. They loved Abraham. He was the father, after all, the, the, the father of their nation, the progenitor of the Jewish people. He was the original Jew. And Paul knew that he was headed somewhere in his writing here. He was laying out his thoughts in logical sequence. And so he strategically decides to bring up this man, Abraham, because he was considered the national hero of Israel, because the Jews claimed Abraham as their supreme example of justification by works. He brings up Abraham because Abraham lived before the giving of the Jewish law and because he, was, he believed that Abraham was actually the supreme example of faith in the Old Testament. You've got to realize that the Jewish people who would sit there and read Paul's letter, they would have cringed at this notion of justification through faith alone because they were steeped, listen, in a works-based system, a performance-based religious system. Faith alone would undercut their entire system of ritual observances. They thought salvation had to be earned by good behavior. 
But that's how you got in. That's how you got in good with God. That's how you got into heaven, by your good behavior. The rabbis had taught them that for centuries. And also they taught them that Abraham had been chosen by God and had a special relationship with God because of his good behavior, because of his virtue and his obedience. And so Paul was convinced that if he could show these Jewish people that their hero, this revered patriarch, was in fact justified before God by faith, not by his righteous deeds. Well, that would be a game changer for them. That would change the whole picture. That would mean that everybody else needed to go that path too, the path of faith. Because if, if, if Abraham didn't have enough righteous works of his own to be accepted by God, then certainly no one else did either. And if Abraham could only be declared righteous by faith, well, then that would have to be true for everybody else. So Paul knew that in the Jewish mind, everything rose and fell with Abraham. He longed for his fellow Jews to have God's salvation. So he focuses on their hero here in Romans 4 as, as the key to help them get there. So Listen as I read the first few verses of Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now you've got to know how disconcerting this would have been to Jews who'd cut their teeth on a works-based system. They would have read that and said, what? What, Paul? Are you out of your mind? It was Abraham's faith that made him righteous? Not his works? You can't be serious. And Paul, in essence, is saying, I'm very serious. It was only by faith that our father, Abraham, was justified before God. That would have been a shock to their system. So this is his first point. Abraham was justified by faith alone and not by works. And he makes that statement, and he, it would have been controversial. He grounds it in three things, in logic, in Scripture, and in a common illustration from everyday life. So he says, he says this. He says, logically, think about it now, if justification was by works then human boasting would inevitably follow that and credit for our salvation would have to be shared between God and us if we had a part in it, right? He knew this is how we human beings are wired. If the system for gaining righteousness is a performance-based system, well, that's going to inevitably lead to competition and bragging by the top performers, boasting. And if good words, works were the basis for Abraham's being right with God, which is what the Jewish rabbis had taught, then he could have boasted about how he had earned God's favor by being so good. He could claim some credit for his own justification. But it's as, as if here Paul is saying, do you really think that? Do you really think that humans can achieve a righteousness that is acceptable to God by their own efforts, really? He could have added, if that was the case, why did Jesus even come? Why did Jesus even die? 
Truth is that people might think they're pretty good compared to other people, but compared to God, they've got nothing to boast about. Just He says, just think about it logically. If anybody ever gets truly justified, then God has to deserve 100% of the credit for that. And that goes for Abraham too. It just makes logical sense, he says. But there's more, and I think this is the strategic part. Scripturally, he says, the Old Testament is very clear that our father Abraham was actually justified not by his good works, but by faith. He asks the question, what does Scripture say? Remember, he's talking to very religious Jewish people. He's like, have you not read your Bible? What does it say? And then he quotes from their Scriptures, Genesis 15, 6, which says, Abraham what? Believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. I think it was pretty smart of Paul to appeal to the Jews' own Scriptures here, don't you think? You who love the Old Testament, look at what it says. It's in your own scriptures. Abraham was justified by his belief, his faith in God. That's what saved him, not his works of obedience. And I would say, we all who name the name of Jesus need to know our own scriptures, don't we? We need to know the Word of God. God's people need to know God's Word. That's why we teach right out of the Bible Every weekend here in our worship gatherings, that's why we teach out of the Bible in our student ministries and even in our kids' life ministries with the little ones. We, we teach right out of God's Word because God's people need to know God's Word. When people don't know God's Word, they become vulnerable. They become susceptible to clever minds and engaging personalities and smooth talkers. They're susceptible to being led astray. They could end up trusting in their own efforts to be right with God rather than trusting in Jesus. Somehow the Jewish people had overlooked the clear testimony of their own scriptures that Abraham was counted righteous before God by his faith, not by his works. Now I'd like to add that Abraham is one of those famous people who's mentioned in the Hall of Faith chapter in the New Testament. Do you know where that is? Hebrews chapter 11, that's right. And I'd like to read what that chapter says about Abraham because it gives us some more insight into the relationship between Abraham's faith and his works and how they work together. Listen, this is Hebrews 11 verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. That's an important phrase. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. That's faith. The van's all packed up, trailer's ready to go. Honey, where are we going? I don't know. But we're going. God said go, so we're going. I don't know if we're going to get on 71 or 70, but we're going. By faith, it says. Faith in God. He went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So this man, by faith, had his sights set on a city that wasn't in the Middle East. He had his sights set on a higher plane. Verse 17, by faith, 
Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now listen, this is so critical to understand. It clarifies the relationship between someone's faith and their good works. Do you see it? By faith, Abraham obeyed, it says. By faith, he went out to live in the land of promise. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. Faith, true faith in God, will produce action. It will produce risk taking. It will produce obedience. It will produce good works. You see, faith is the root and actions are the fruit. Faith is the means of our justification before God, but good works are the the outgrowth, the proof, the evidence of our justification before God. It's only faith that saves people, yes. But it's their works of faith after their profession that validates their claim to be saved. In short, faith works. It has to. It works. It's the nature of true faith to show up in acts of loving obedience or what we call love works. Now, there's another fella whose name was James. And uh, he was a half-brother of our Lord Jesus. So Mary and Joseph had other kids. James was one of those. And he wrote a book in the Bible called the book of James. And uh, James, in his book, made some statements about Abraham's faith and Abraham's works that have puzzled many people because he wrote this in James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So Paul, meet James. You two guys are some heavy hitters in Christianity, right? Rock stars in the first century. But I got to tell you guys, you're confusing us. Which is it? Are we justified by faith or by works? So can you two fellas get in a room and hash this out? And don't come out till you're on the same page and you're united, you're in agreement, because this is kind of important. That's what I want to say. But you know what? I actually believe, I actually believe they were united. And the resolution, I believe, to this apparent conflict is found in the fact that these two men are answering two different questions in their writings. In Romans 4, Paul is explaining how to be justified in the sight of God. James, in James chapter 2, is talking about how to be justified in the sight of men, of people. How the people in your life can have confidence that you're the real deal. 
You say, well, how do you know that? Easy. The preceding verse makes it clear in James 2.20 where he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's talking about the demonstration of faith. And he says, there's a kind of faith that is useless. It's empty. It's hollow. It's phony faith. It won't save anybody. And the way you can identify phony faith is that there's no corresponding change in lifestyle. There's no works of faith. James is making the case that true faith shows up. Has to. Because true saving faith results in the transformation of the heart that cannot help but show up in how you treat God and especially how you treat other people. Faith works. Faith shows up. That's James' point. It's kind of like that old question that maybe you've heard asked. It goes like this. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, if you were put on trial for being saved, for being a Christian person, would there be enough evidence? Could the prosecution line people up who would say, I swear to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but truth, so help me God, sit on the stand and say, she's a Christian. I work with her every day. I see her life when she's under pressure. I see how she treats people. She names the name of Christ, but I'm telling you, I work with her every day. That woman is a Christian. Her life bears the marks of a believer. Would there be witnesses who would, who would say, that guy, that, guy, that guy is the real deal. I mean, I... I live with him. I was his roommate. I, I see how he lives his life. I see what he prioritizes in his life. I see how he treats other people. I see his devotion to God. He's the real deal. This is what James is talking about. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And James is saying, I hope so. Because if you have saving faith, it's going to show up. So here's the biblical reality. People are justified before God by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. As Martin Luther put it, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. Does that make sense? It's kind of like the wind. Can you see the wind? You really can't see the wind. You can just see the evidence of the wind, right? You see leaves blowing around the street or around your yard or from your neighbor's yard into your yard. You see the evidence of the wind, but you, you don't see the wind. Faith is invisible. Faith is something that's in here. It's in the heart. But if it's real, you will see the evidence of it. It will show up. By the way, this is why Scripture so often states that people will be judged by their works. Why? Because our works either verify or undermine our claim to have saving faith. They're the proof. They're the evidence. If you understand what I've said, just kind of nod your head like this. Okay. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just... All right. Thank you, James. Back to Romans. Back to Paul. And we said Paul is concerned with showing 
that being justified before God is based solely on faith, not on works, even for Abraham. Although, as we saw, Abraham's faith did produce works. And just so there's no confusion, Paul then offers an illustration from everyday life to help us. And it's an illustration from the workplace, from the world of employment. An illustration of justification by faith that that it is not earned, but it's a gift. So in verse 4, he says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So how many of you work? How many of you have a job? Like you get up and go to work. Okay. How many of you get paid for working? Hopefully that's like the same number of people, right? Listen, on Friday, when an employee gets their paycheck and opens it up and takes a look at it, no employee opens up their paycheck and says, well, how kind of them. My boss is such a loving and considerate person to give me this gift. What a thoughtful gesture. I'm so thankful for his generosity. Nobody says that. No, no, no. We all understand the employment agreement was to trade time and effort for what? For money. (laughs) The paycheck is not a gift. It is an earned wage. We all get that distinction. And so in verse 5, Paul applies this common understanding to what he's talking about here, justification by faith. He says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So listen, it is a gift. It's a gift received by faith. If you could work for it, if you could work for it, then righteousness could be earned. And that's what every other religion in the world says. That being right with God is something you do earn by being good, by doing the right stuff. And in that way of thinking, eternal life is really a what? A paycheck that you earn by working. Wages for being good. But biblical Christianity is unique. It claims that a right standing with God is actually a gift. cannot be earned. It would have to be a gift because it could not possibly be earned. Biblical Christianity claims that God only makes His righteousness available to people of faith, and He does so, it says, by crediting it to their account. Theologians use the term imputing. He imputes His righteousness to those who have faith. It's it's accounting language here. He credits it to their account. It goes on the credit side of the ledger. He counts his righteousness to be theirs, and it is a gift. I want to be so super clear about that. A gift that can only be received by faith and only by people who see themselves as what? In verse 5, he justifies the ungodly. Yeah, those are the only people who can receive this gift. Ungodly people. That means there's hope for me. It means there's hope for you. Because God only justifies ungodly people. You know, people who think they're good enough for God, 
on their own, people who think they meet up to his standards, they can't be saved. They won't even want to be saved until they come to first see themselves as falling short of godliness. Isn't that true? But when God opens a person's eyes to see their true condition before him, then they become candidates for receiving God's gift of justification by faith. And when that happens to them, in them, for them, it is just sweet. And that's where Paul takes us next. Through bringing into his conversation here the example of another Old Testament character whom we know as King David. King David of Israel. Justification by faith supported by King David's experience too. Listen to uh, verse 6 of Romans 4. Just as David, David, King David, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David in the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man, we could add, or woman, against whom the Lord will not count his You know what? If you're in Christ, you're blessed. Being released from the pressure of having to be good enough to earn our own righteousness, being released from that pressure is a huge blessing. People who experience that sense of relief, like King David, if you know his story, they would testify to that. We who have been justified by Jesus are so blessed. Blessed to be out from under the penalty of breaking God's holy law. Blessed to be completely forgiven of all of our sins, erased. Sins in the past, sins in the present, and sins in the future. Say, Pastor Steve, how can God forgive sins that I haven't even committed yet? Are you saying that? Yes, I'm saying that. Because guess what? When Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were future. Isn't that blessed? Blessed to not have to hide in shame anymore. Blessed not to have to go around pretending that we're somebody that we're not. Blessed to be off the performance treadmill. Finally. Blessed to have been given Jesus' record and a new status before God, like Abraham, friend of God. God friended me and you, if you're in Christ. Blessed to now be an adopted son or an adopted daughter of the Heavenly Father with a seat around his table. Blessed that our sins are no longer held against us. Blessed because God does not have any wrath left for you. He poured out all his just and holy wrath on his son so that he could pour out all of his grace and mercy on you and on me. We are so blessed. This section is mostly about Abraham, but Paul throws King David's name in here because David, as much as anybody, knew that his justification before God was only by faith, not any of his own doing, because he knew his own doing was evil. David was a power abuser. He was the king, and 
He used his power to steal another man's wife and committed adultery with her, as you know. Then he arranged to have her husband murdered to cover it all up so he could take this woman to be his wife. But after being confronted and repenting of his sin, he says, my sin was covered by God and I'm blessed. He was declared righteous through his faith. Listen to me. Please, please, please do not ever think that you are too far from God or too bad for God to be saved. I'm thinking of the person in this room right now, maybe many of you, who are convinced that your past is just too awful, that that, that what you've done in your past is is just too wicked, that, that God would never want you for himself, that he would never want you in his family, that God would be ashamed to have you. I'm telling you it's a lie. It is a lie from Satan. That's something that God, that's not something God would say to you. That's something that Satan would say to you. Your past is too wicked, too evil. You've messed up too much. God doesn't want you. That sounds like a lie from Satan to me. And as one fellow said, when Satan reminds you of your past, You just remind him of his future. You do not have to receive those lies, those deceptions from him. Your past, listen, if you're in Christ, your past is under the blood. It says it's cast into the sea of forgetfulness to be remembered no more against you. Isn't that good? Say, but God, what about about 1987 and all the stuff I did in 1987? He's like, I remember that against you. No more because of Christ. Your past, listen, has lost its power to haunt you. It really has. It's been cut off. It's been broken. Believe it. Remember, this is a life of faith, right? Paul's correcting this common misconception that Jewish people held, that Abraham and everybody else had to work hard for their justification. It's the lie of self-salvation, that you can save yourself by your own goodness. He's pretty much debunked that, that theory. Now there's a second and related misconception that was also widespread among Jewish people. We're not going to spend as much time on this one because it's about circumcision. And who wants to talk about that for a long time? But the thought was this, justification is only for the circumcised. It's only for those people who bore that physical mark of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, who, by the way, according to Genesis 18.24, how old was Abraham when he got circumcised? 99. So you're thinking, I'm kind of I'm old for that surgery. Well, many Jews believed and many rabbis had taught for years that being circumcised was the only way to get to heaven. It was considered to be the first meritorious work towards your salvation. One ancient rabbi was quoted as saying, no circumcised man will ever see hell. 
Another rabbi taught this, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite to enter there. So circumcision was seen to be kind of a guarantee of your eternal salvation. That belief had apparently carried forward into the first century because in Acts 15.1 it says, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this teaching was prevalent that circumcision guaranteed basically your salvation. You say, what about women? Well, in those days, women were considered to be under the headship of their man. So they had a vested interest in their guy going under the knife if he hadn't as an infant. But the Apostle Paul begs to differ with all of this. And again, ironically, he points to Abraham to make his point. Point number two, Abraham was justified by faith alone and not by circumcision. So let me read this paragraph here from Romans 4. Just listen as I read. Is this blessing, talking about the blessing of being forgiven, of being justified. Excuse me, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I think that's the most I've ever said that word in one paragraph in my life. Stay with me here, okay? You can see that there's some chronology in view here, right? When you read the story of Abraham's life, what you find is that in Genesis 15, 6, where it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that moment was at least 14 years before his circumcision. And Paul just wants to point out that Abraham, who the Jews thought was saved by his circumcision, was actually saved long before he was ever went under the knife. I know all this talk about circumcision is uncomfortable, so I'll end it soon. Just know that, as it says in verse 11, circumcision was a sign. And we know what a sign is, right? They're all around, signs. Signs point to something else, right? A sign is not the thing. The sign points to the thing. If you see a sign that says, Cleveland, that way, you don't go climb up the top of the sign and sit on top of the sign and say, I'm in Cleveland. No, you say, the sign points me to Cleveland. I need to go where the sign is pointing me. Circumcision, it says, was a sign. It was a sign that pointed to the special covenant relationship that God had with all of the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, and gave them a very privileged position. You see, God had made some promises. And some of those promises were only for them, only for the descendants of Abraham, only for the Jews. Promises about them receiving land as an inheritance, right? Promises about prospering in that land if they continued to honor God and keep His laws. 
Promises about being a light to the Gentiles, to attracting Gentile people into faith in God. Promises of being a great nation and multiplying descendants of Abraham more than the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky, multiplying, becoming a great nation, and ultimately a promise of a coming king who would be one of them, who would come from them, who would be a Jew, who would one day rule the entire world from Jerusalem. So every time a little baby boy was born into a Jewish family, and every time the ritual of circumcision was performed, that was a sign to remind that family that they were part of God's specially chosen people. Paul makes it clear here, circumcision was never meant to ensure that little baby's salvation. It was a sign of the covenant, yes, but it was not a pass into heaven. Relying upon a ceremony or a ritual to gain righteousness in the sight of God is a huge mistake, Paul is saying. Surgery cannot save you in the sight of God. Even Abraham, that great Jewish patriarch, was actually saved back when he was an uncircumcised Gentile. There were no Jews. It was by his faith, not by his surgery. Because his surgery hadn't even been scheduled yet. It was 14 years away. So what about us in our day? Well, we might point to those people who believe that observing certain religious rituals is what makes them right with God, what makes them acceptable to God. And there are millions of people who believe that. Whether it's being baptized or taking communion or receiving the sacraments or making a pilgrimage, these are not bad things or evil things, not in and of themselves. But the question is, is that what you're banking on? Is that what a person is trusting in to gain God's favor, to gain God's acceptance? That's the question. And if so, if that's what they're banking on, they're going to miss righteousness. They're going to miss it. God's righteousness is only imputed to people who by faith reach out and receive the gift that God has purchased for them through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Those people, both Jew and Gentile, Paul says, are actually the true offspring of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, because it says they share Abraham's faith, the faith of Abraham in a God who justifies ungodly people and gives them his righteousness. And that's what our memory verse for this week says so clearly, Romans 4 Five. Is it on a box there in the back side of your outline? Okay, let's say this out loud together, would you? Would you join me? Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now that was the first verse in the Bible that I ever memorized as a little kid back in Awana clubs, but when I memorized it, it didn't sound like that. It sounded like this, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That was from the King James Version of the Bible. It says the same thing. You can't earn it by working. 
You can only receive it by faith as a gift. So we'll leave it there for today, but as I finish up, I must ask this question, kind of cycling back to where I started. Do you have the gospel right in your own mind? Do you get this? Do you, do you have a correct biblical, biblical, that's what I'm trying to say, biblical understanding of the gospel in your, in your head? And beyond that, let me ask, are you one in this room here today, are you one who is absolute, absolutely sure that you have been justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ? And if so, when do you believe that happened for you? When did it get personal for you? We know about Abraham's justification. We know about David's. Do you have a, can you point to a time, a place, a date, at least a year? For this all became real and personal for you and you put your full trust, the full weight of your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? And if you're not sure, what's holding you back? I mean, if you're not absolutely sure about that, what's keeping you today from transferring your full trust to Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified for you and rose from the dead, it says, for your justification? What's holding you back? What, what impediment? What's in the way? What obstacle is keeping you from crossing that line of faith? And trusting in Christ alone for your forgiveness and for your justification and for, to assure your own heart. As I've done several times in this series on Romans, I put a, a prayer of faith for salvation on your outline there. And this is not the only prayer, but I do think this prayer captures the essence of what we've been talking about here today. And I'd like to just pray through it. And maybe you'll be like others in the last two celebrations who prayed through this along with me because you're one of those who, who really is not sure that this has ever happened for you. I invite you to pray this prayer along with me and just say, yes, yes, that's me, Lord. Yes, that's me. So it's a prayer and it goes like this. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I want to be justified by faith today. I want the forgiveness you offer and Jesus' perfect record credited to me. I want to receive your gift. I humbly admit that I am a sinner and have fallen far short of what you require. In my life, I've broken your holy law many times, but I hate my sins. I turn away from them now. I long to be free of them and also free of the judgment that my sins deserve. I've heard your good news today. And in this moment, in this moment, I'm choosing to receive your gift of righteousness by believing that Jesus Christ is your son, that he died on the cross in my place in order to save me from my sin. I also believe that he rose again to life and is with you even now in heaven. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I call upon you now by faith to save me. I transfer my full trust and allegiance to my new master, Jesus Christ, and him alone. For his sake, please have mercy on me. Forgive me of all my sins. Grant me the gift of his righteousness and your eternal life. And please give me your strength to follow Jesus as Lord of my life from this moment on and to live the kind of life that pleases you. I now declare that Jesus is my Lord. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. 
you know, last night in celebrations, I asked, I said, how many of you just prayed that prayer along with me? And there was a man right over here who said, I did. Last celebration, there was like three people right over in this section said, I prayed that prayer. I wonder how many of you in this celebration prayed that prayer along with me. Could I see your hands? Anyone? Yeah? Amen? Back there? Yes? Anybody else? No one miss anybody? Hey, that's great. That's good news. That's how you get in the family, right? By receiving it by faith. If you are a believer here today, I want to ask you that question I asked earlier, just, just to get you thinking about it. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Could the prosecution line up witnesses who right and left would say, oh yes, oh yeah, I work with them, I live with them, I've seen them, I've seen them under pressure. They're not perfect, they're not claiming to be perfect, but I know they're trusting in Christ. It's showing up in their life. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Good question, isn't it? Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for Romans chapter 4. Because if we didn't have Romans 4, we wouldn't know any of this. I mean, would we know that it was a gift and not something we can work for and earn? Thank you for the testimony of Paul and of Abraham and David. I thank you for these who prayed along with me in this celebration just a few moments ago. But I pray that by faith you bring them into your family. Lord, for those of us who would claim to know you, I, I pray you get us to think about our lives and whether we're letting our light shine, whether we're representing you well to the people who are in our lives every day. Lord, give us your strength and courage to do just that. And we'll give you praise in Christ's precious name, I pray. Amen. Amen.